0: Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Jason. And today we have with us a special guest, Mir Ball. Say hello, Mir.
1: Hello, comrades in Christ all over the world.
0: (laughs) So, uh, Mir is a social worker, an activist, and a podcaster in Sweden. And, Mir, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, um, I have gone from the center-left-ish, back in the early 2000s, I was actually a politician in Sweden, Uh, I was elected to one of the, to the the city council in the second biggest city in Sweden, Uh, I quit that, uh, like, around 2014, Uh, and since then I've been a freelance activist, podcaster. I've written articles, debates, uh, and I had for a long time a a Swedish left-wing podcast. I have been interviewed in both Emancipation Network and uh, Doug Lane's Zero Squared.
0: Yeah, and that's where I am familiar with you from, is from from Zero Squared and Emancipation Network. And uh, so today, what we're going to be doing is talking about Christian marxism liberation theology and catholic communism mm-hmm. we have we have sort of an ongoing theme on this podcast and that is a an attempt to reclaim the warm stream in marxism that has been disunited from what you know the opposite which would be the cold stream in marxism and our attempt in this podcast is to Reunite those two. I know it's a it's a big job, right? But we we want to reunite the the human element that that uh, I think gets left out of the cold stream of Marxism, the purely scientific minded stream of Marxism. And we think that there is room in Marxism for a romantic view of the world and a focus on metaphysics. And a focus on things that can't necessarily be quantified and explained easily using the scientific method, you know.
2: Put a heart in a heartless world.
0: Exactly. Put a heart in a heartless world. So, you know, this is uh, another episode along those lines. We've talked a lot about Marxist Romanticism. We've talked about Gothic Marxism. And I think that a a focus on Christianity and a focus on uh, Catholic Communism specifically is a much needed addition to this conversation because i see a lot online specifically a lot of christians coming into the the radical left adopting marxism and then not eschewing christianity which is a lot different than the way i was raised mm. and um i think that i i remember i had an old an older comrade who was a communist party member who had been in, in the party since the 40s and we were talking one time in the early 2000s. I had, he was a a professor at a university nearby, and he said that the the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and the the rise of liberation theology has really illustrated that the that there needs to be a union of religious left wing and mar- of the religious left wing and the Marxist left wing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I don't. I couldn't agree more. And I think that this is the perfect time for us to start talking about these sorts of things.
1: I completely agree. And one of the interesting things when you talk about Marxists, like the old-fashioned second international and third international Marxists, is that they do not realize that the religious roots of, of the communist, of the socialist tradition... Uh, we can begin with what most people, I think, know that most of the utopian socialists were were Christian thinkers. Yes, um, that is nothing new. Karl Kautsky wrote a lot about about the connections between religion and uh, and socialism. Uh, one of his first books was on the saint Thomas More. And his book Utopia he also wrote the book on uh, the escetic uh, mo- movement and uh, the monasteries and monastery communism uh, but even if we're talking about the more orthodox marx Marxism, you cannot really entangle that from from Christianity because Marx Built all his building blocks on Hegel, basically, and right. Hegel, and this is something that few Marxists tangle with enough. Is that uh, Hegel was a fundamentally Paulinian thinker, not not merely a Christian thinker, but like all his vocabularies are are taken from the Polinian letters. Right uh, from the unhappy consciousness, from the absolute spirit. The spirit is the Holy Ghost. The yeah. absolute is the knowing of Christ. Uh, the unhappy consciousness, like, or even sense certainty. Sense certainty is like uh, a concept that he uses that is taken from the Polinian letters. All of his fundamental concepts are verbatim taken. Uh, and these are not just words. He treats these words as words within in history and they have clear, clear Christian uh, connotations.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. And I think that um, when you really look at the Catholic left, specifically in the 20th century, mm-hmm. there's a lot of dialogue with Marxism. Mm-hmm. And I think that and not even just the Catholic left, the Christian left in general. Yeah. But specifically, the Catholic left is, I think, what we focused on in our readings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because liberation theology is such a large figure in twentieth-century leftism, and mm-hmm. you see that there's a there's a lot of dialogue there, and uh, there there will I will go ahead and post this in the show notes. Um, there's this very good Michael Lowy article that came out in the early eighties where he's talking about what liberation theology and what Catholic communism and Christian communism can, that what we can take away from that as Marxists and incorporate into our, you know, into our organizing and our worldview and uh I think that he he shows a lot that there's been that the the liberation theologists of South America drew from Rosa Luxembourg and Gramsci and Ernst Bloch and as as much as they drew from the millenarian communists of the pre-modern period and of the early modern period like and I think that there is something that we can learn from this i think that I think that there's a lot of i mean the, a lot of the ethics of Christianity. Uh, I think can be used to bolster our a, a proletarian ethic and yeah. I think that rather than re- re- rather than requesting that all the, the the proletarian movement worldwide just adopt Christianity I think that there can be elements of Christianity that are taken into the proletarian movement and adopted even as secular marxists
2: well sure and maybe I think even the reverse is true maybe yeah, not everybody absolutely. who is a, not everybody of faith needs to adopt marxism right i think one of the most interesting potentials here is a, a seeking of a convergence of interest and of motivation and i think uh mir i mean this isn't like a dispassionate approach to you at all right you because you are a catholic
1: yeah uh, i am a catholic i am a combat my teenage rebellion was starting to go to to church but they if it's not my Parents are radical eighties, so I told them that I went to play in a punk band instead. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's a very <laughs> Swedish form of rebellion.
1: Yeah, uh, so, that's the
0: exact opposite of mine and Jason's experience.
2: <laughs> I mean, the literal opposite.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and that's a practicing Christian. I've always been the oddball out in. Um, in the left in sweden basically there are all there are a big anarchist milieu of anarcho-christian activists in sweden or big or big like what can it be 30 people it's a lot for being sweden <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but this is not a dispassionate approach for me i found Christianity through my engagement with the left uh, uh, and then my engagement with hardcore Marxism came hand in hand with my engagement with, um, with Catholicism right. um, and we have Catholics and Marxists have some similar interests I they convert to some point there are also differences, and those should not be put aside. I am deeply suspicious of, um, and that's one of my critique of some of the liberation theologists, not all of them, uh, that they try to make religion into a political tool. Right. Uh, but we have, if nothing else, common enemies. Exactly. Uh, Like, all of the big theoreticians of the right, of the hard right, are Mm -hmm. anti-Catholic. Nietzsche was opposed to socialism because it was nothing else than a secularized form of Christianity. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, And and, uh, we have uh, Julius Evola who famously claimed that Catholicism was the the biggest mistake in the history of humanity, uh, we have uh, his teacher, René Girard, uh, René Kion, who claims similar things. Uh, most of the Nazis, uh, in high members of the Nazi parties, saw, saw, uh, saw the Third Reich as an ultimate goal to destroy Christianity but they realized that they had to do that in steps they had to begin with the communists and then the Jews and then they would cleanse uh, germany from from christianity which correctly is an extension of judaism
2: right 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 well and even like what fewer than 20 years ago some of the leading uh, proponents of the war on terror Around you know, and the the construction of an entirely new version of the world, which has given us the crisis in Syria and Yemen and so on. They they these are atheist, you know, nominally liberal-minded crusaders who paint the scourge of religion broadly, but primarily these are people in the West. So their version of religion is their own experience with Christianity. So like there is yeah, there is an old old anti-clerical left which is horribly outdated because church and state have been separated for generations now. But I think there's still a version of us that like a version of the left that wants to cling to the idea that, you know, that pyramid of the capitalist system poster that's really popular. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we rule you, we fool you and so on. And the, we fool you. It's all these priests, Mm -hmm. but I look around and I don't see priests in charge of any government, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah. But then you, then you are from the United States. Things in Europe are a little bit different, to to be honest. <laughs> uh, for for example, in Poland and Hungary, right? Uh, okay,
3: yeah, that's true.
1: Uh, uh, and in Sweden, the official separation of church and state was only in two thousand. Oh 2000. wow!
0: I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's very late.
1: Yeah, we we had the state shut. Uh, a state Lutheran church Uh, and it should also be stressed that um, in Europe we have a different kind of right wing uh, that is much more hostile to Christianity than uh, in many parts of the United States I'm thinking about the new emergence of, of these far right parties, they are not so new anymore but we have in Sweden, the Swedish Democrats, which is one of the biggest parties in our parliament, in most opinion polls, they are between twenty and thirty per- percent. They were created by a former SS volunteer. Uh, of course. The real stuff. Yeah, we have the uh, Front National, Generation uh, Identitaire, Alternative for Deutschland, Uh and these kind of parties are extremely influenced by the neo-pagan movement. They have watched watched that way in public. Uh, They do not talk about it anymore so much externally but internally there are these ideas of a return to the pagan past Mm -hmm. uh, because Christianity is a universal religion and universalism and and the idea that each person has access to universal truth is anathema to the far right. That's why it goes so well hand in hand with the neo-pagan movement. We also see this in Mexico, actually, where we have seen a resurgence of Aztec neo-Nazism. <laughs> it's a weird yeah. thing, but it exists.
2: <laughs> sure, I mean, I guess there's the in trying to construct a, a militant offensive national identity that you would have to reject. I mean, and in some ways it even at, at a visceral level, it makes sense to be, to, to see the import of Christianity as a result of colonization. Mm. And there's a weird like pseudo radicalism that's bound up in this like regaining of the national consciousness, which I mean, like, you can see how it happens very easily. Like in the United States, In all of the border states, there's very much like a a political notion of Aslan as like a, you know, sort of the Aztec uh, former glory that is Mm -hmm. primarily kind of a left wing uh, aesthetic. But you could see how absent any broader universal categories that Mm -hmm. that could be easily adopted by the right. Yeah. Um, The same thing with, you know, with the neo-paganism. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's probably important to say right away that there's nothing inherently reactionary about the rediscovery of whatever your particular culture's roots but if that is the project in itself by itself it's very susceptible to um i don't know what do you want to call it co-optation yeah
1: yeah uh and if you want to wage war on on the left product of a universal history you have to find a way out of the Abrahamic religions because they are universal by nature uh, not even Protestantism and the Reformation completely destroyed that uh, a big part of the Reformation was the nationalization of of religion from right. being a cosmopolitan project from being an international project it went to being a national project Uh, But even so, you cannot become a hardcore nationalist, racist, and take your even Protestant faith seriously. Uh, But it lends itself easier to compromises than... um, uh, And and the Orthodox Church is by no way uh, blameless here. Neither the Catholic Church, but Catholicism is... If we're speaking of the three brands of Christianity, uh, the one that is hardest to disregard the internationalist and the universalist tendencies.
0: Right. But I think that it, it can be done and has. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah Franco.
0: It, it meets the it meets the needs of the the ruling classes of the individual countries that will exploit it in whichever way they see fit. But it does, you you are right that it does, it is harder to justify.
2: Yeah. But even, even to be able to have like a national, nationalist Catholicism or a national Catholicism, you first had to obliterate the notion of Christendom, right? Right. So you move from Christendom to the to kingdoms Mm -hmm. and then the reinterpretation of this formerly universalist ethic that, that comes from the, the all being a part of the same body, it can be uh, yeah that that's that's like a historical precondition
1: mm. and like if we're to jump into uh the main topic, the uh, um, historic relationship between uh Catholicism and marxism, uh, it has usually been part of missionary work, uh, of the internal mission, in missionary work in countries. The marriage between, or the cooperation between Marxism and Catholicism came about through missionary works in separate countries. Uh, the first wave of liberation theology is usually traced back to Belgium yeah. and France. Uh, and it was basically priests who, in order to end values up, to re-Christianize the working classes, had to engage with the real conditions of the working classes and their lived, and their lived realities. And then found Marx as a tool to explain the impoverishment of their spiritual lives and their material lives. Even the Catholic Church, centrally, was quite open to this for a long time. Uh, like back when uh, there is a famous encyclical *Rerum Novarum*, uh, and it was published in in eighteen ninety one. So quite early on, the head of the Catholic Church called for freedom to unionize, right. because back unions were legal all over Europe. <laughs>
0: That's it's interesting that this era of liberation theology that you're talking about right now predates the Latin American liberation theology by quite some time.
1: The when we talk about liberation theology, we often talk about uh, yeah, Latin, the Latin American variety, most prominently Peru, and Nicaragua, and Bolivia. Uh, and- yeah and brazil and that wave of liberation theology kicked off during the 6th late 60s right. 70 uh, and that was basically an implementation as this prezoic of the second Vatican council
0: yeah the wave of liberation theology that you're mentioning um uh, mm-hmm. when did that begin
1: um uh, it poured uh, in the late 1880s and 1890s, but it really kicked up in the 20s and the 30s, right. uh, and that was basically a reaction to um, the to urbanization and and industrialization because the classic mode of the Catholic Church is parishes, right, and parishes. Are hard to do in urbanized middle middle years. We still haven't figured out how to do it in in two to three hundred years, basically. And some priests uh, basically began to, instead of preaching in churches, to take jobs in factories.
0: Oh, so sort of, uh, what do they call that Jason? Uh, Salting? Yeah. (laughs) And yeah. union organizers will get a job in a factory in order to organize a union.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically, basically that. Uh, and that was uh that was a uh, substantial movement. Uh it was called worker priests. Uh they were later forbidden from doing that uh in the 30s, I think that was. Uh for <laughs> It was unfortunate that it happened that way, but the critique from the Vatican was that priests have sacramental duties as well, and that those duties were neglected.
0: Oh. yeah, I can see that.
1: <laughs> and then we have a second wave of Marxists, or more leftists. Uh, Catholic priests and activists, mostly laymen, who came during and after the Second World War.
0: Right. I was going to say that you mentioned that a lot of the this first wave of of uh, liberation theology coming to a head happened in the twenties and thirties. So a lot of that's going to be during the Great Depression and yeah. alongside the rise of the big communist parties in. Yeah in Europe uh, and, and, pro- oh, and, a- and all over the world.
2: Well, um, and also alongside the rise of an al- alternately politicized or a, a, a the opposite conversion convergence of religion and politics in the form of like Mir, you mentioned Franco. And in yeah. this country we had a radio personality, father Coughlin was a yeah. Catholic priest who mm. was, you know, trying, trying to do something similar. Didn't get it quite off the ground though.
1: Mm. Yeah, and like these, this, this first wave of liberation theology in Europe resulted in some quite big parties, primarily in Belgium and France. They had uh, some, so, some of them got into parliament, around uh, five to seven percent, and some quite large Catholic unions. And so unions.
0: So, did they uh, participate in the Popular Front government of Leon Blum?
1: I think they had died by then.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Yeah, because the thing was that they had a really hard time maneuvering being Catholics and at the same time working militants. Like the space was very niche. So, yes. they were attacked both from the right and from the left constantly. Right. And I think
0: that I think that the book mentions that a lot of the, the um the cath the militant, like working class Catholics were siphoned off into socialist parties.
2: Yeah. Well sure. And it isn't it the case that the that sort of left anti clericalism is maybe strongest in France, like of all countries, because of the legacy of the French Revolution and the and the historic relationship of the Catholic Church to the French monarchy. Like I think yeah. like an over de- overly determined kind of secularism is still very much a part of the French left today. And not just secularism, but like hostility to mm-hmm. religion.
0: Right, that can be seen in the the burqa bans and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that have been uh, supported by the French left uh, in the 2000s. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and Spain as well, because uh, the cosmopolitan church in Spain was very much affiliated with, uh, with the far right yeah uh, but the rural church was much more lefty like we we all know that uh, in the civil war in france in spain the anarchists executed a bunch of priests right yeah uh, uh, but franco did as well like probably more
0: yeah that's uh, something that that never gets mentioned. <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Franco like killed the... n-
0: far more Catholics than uh, the, the anarchists ever did.
1: Yeah, and like also far more priests and far more nuns, and um, uh, and like uh, it. He was really hostile to the rural clergy and basically replaced it.
0: Well, the 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 thing about the lower clergy throughout history mm-hmm. has been that they they're they themselves are a sort of neglected layer of the church that um performs uh in a sort of exploited capacity yeah. in administering to their flocks which are generally exploited rural peasants and the 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 odd of course rich peasant you know but one of the things that i studied as an undergrad was the uh English peasants revolt of 1381 and the thing that you find that is common in that revolt and as in the Jacquerie in France and also in the 14th century and then in other peasant revolts is that the lower clergy were the people that were leading these revolts so you you have uh, lo- the lower clergy sort of acts as like a vanguard for leading peasant revolts against the upper clergy and against you know the nobility because they've got access to these uh millenarian beliefs that have been talked about in the church and written against in the church and also they've read the bible so they know the book of acts you know mm-hmm. so they uh i think the common slogan of the english peasants revolt was when adam delved in Eve's span who was then a gentleman you know that there yeah. should be no hierarchy there should be no nobility and that uh There's a millenarian belief that translates into modern uh, liberation theology that uh, preparing the way for Christ is creating some form of loosely defined communism on earth.
1: Absolutely. This lower layer of the clergy is often still today the left hasn't made it easy for <laughs>
0: easy no, for at, all. Me
1: at all. And some of the some of the extreme reactions from the Catholic Church and from religious movement overall, I think has been nothing more than terror man- terror management yeah. and and negative identity. Like these guys are attacking us so ferociously. So we must be against everything they stand for. Uh that is a classical yeah, terror terror management theory is psychological theory that explains how basically negative identity reinforces itself when a group is under threat or perceived to be under threat. The threat does not have to be real. Uh so when the left is attacking the any kind of religious movement. Quite often the the religious movement are forced into the arms of the right and the far right because it's hard to be a milk toast conservative or milk toast liberal when you are when you're a Christian because in Christianity this is this radical critique of individualism of commodification there is this messianic moment so like and there is this view of absolute truth and social justice and of the church as a collective organization and none of those things are are in the long run neither the mainstream conservative like the broken conservatives nor the lucky liberals or the green parties today or the democrats can absorb right. that critique of commodification of individualism.
2: Right, so you have the body of believers moving as a unit in whatever direction they're pushed, yeah. whether it's away or toward you, um, exactly. unlike the average uh, well, anybody who's not um, fused with uh, a series of others through some sort of shared you know, like so some universalist vision that makes plenty of sense. You can atomize, or you can further atomize people who are not who are already not bound together. But in the case of like a community, um, there are there are collective responses and collective med- ideas about protection and like self defense and self interest. So it would make sense just if you just think about what a church is. That if you if you attack it, that it doesn't it doesn't likely scattered to the winds it likely maybe retreats into another space but like you know all those people all the people involved go with it that, right. that really should probably be a lot more obvious to us than i think it than it has been yeah and i'll go ahead and uh side with lenin on this issue mm-hmm.
0: where he um bold controversial stance <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean lenin is thinks that Religion is, he quote, quote, unquote, spiritual booze is what he calls it, you know, for deadening the pain of reality, which I I don't disagree that it does deaden the pain of reality a little bit. It's very comforting.
2: But um, Lenin he was al- also famously anti-booze, and that's not <laughs> necessarily a position that we endorse.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like also, <laughs> I think that one should not do this atheist myth, that myth that all religious people are so much happier like have you ever tried going to confession like that overwhelming catholic guilt like things are more complex
0: if you're you're doing christianity right you're not expecting to be made happy by your religion that's what i think (laughs) so um but what what he said is that religion should absolutely be a private affair that the state has nothing to do with and the party shouldn't have anything to say about what people's religions are and that religion religious organizations should be uh, absolutely free associations of like-minded citizens associations independent of the state and only the complete fulfillment of those demands can put an end to the shameful and accursed past when the church lived in feudal dependence on the state so yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Religion should be a thing that the party has no say in, a thing that the state has no say in, and should be free associations of like-minded people. So I think that uh, for all the Mar- our Marxist-Leninist listeners out there, uh, the war with religion is over. You don't have to ha- – you know, you don't have to – Lenin has given you permission to not give a shit about other people's religions.
1: Yeah, that works within an orthodox or a, or a Protestant framework. It doesn't work within and 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 probably Jewish as well. It's harder in an Islamic and or Catholic framework because both both Islam and Catholicism has has high focus on 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 institutions right the the Catholic Church and and most of Sunni and Shia primarily Shia Islam has always worked with building parallel parallel institutions when lenin talked about dual power and trotsky talked about dual power they were basically just copying the early churches yeah that was how they worked how christianity won the won the roman empire by dual power strategies
0: yeah i mean that's i don't think that's incorrect i think that's that's probably true <laughs> i mean and christianity that- it, it, that that can that is evidenced by the fact that when the Roman Empire collapsed in the West, the only cent- centralized sources of power were around the bishops, and the bishops became essentially lords, independent lords of uh, the area that they controlled. And of course, in the late Rome, the, the Roman Church being organized into dioceses and parishes just draws that language and that method of organization from the Ro- the late Roman Empire.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's the the base building strategy really worked very well for Christianity.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. uh, But uh, but when the Roman Empire collapsed, the church was the only one who who had institutions. And so all these administrators, these careerists.
0: People who could read.
1: Exactly. People who could read and do law. Had exactly. nowhere else to go than to the church, yeah. and the church has always in and actually still still is today, at, at least to some extent, uh, merit uh, meritocracy. If you are young and poor, you can work yourself way up the hierarchies by being smart and capable as hell.
0: Yeah. What's interesting too is the the function of the church even in modern secular societies as a repository of information. So I think that we when we do any kind of genealogical research in my family, it all ends in the late nineteenth century because the parish with the the records from my family's uh, birth and baptisms in in uh, what's now the Czech Republic burned down. So. All of the all of our genealogical records are lost, so we we don't have any idea what 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 happened with that branch of the family, how far back it goes. But uh, but with the other branches of the family, you could trace it back even further because the churches didn't burn down, and they still got all of that stuff. And a lot of it's digitized, so you can go back centuries looking at digitized birth and baptism records. And the governments of these countries often relied on the church to be able to to access those records. So yeah, the church is definitely the the church has always been the, the just the repository for knowledge and learning and even records of Western civilization. And uh, it has played a simultaneously positive and negative role as a result of its position.
1: Yeah. And like to, to, to give Nietzsche his due, he was not right when he said that the German social Democrats was basically secular secularized Christians if you look at the early SPD and also the Swedish Social Democrats which I of course know much better uh, they basically copied the structures of the churches their local organizations was basically based on on the geographic limits of the parishes uh, then you had a higher level up with the Well. With a functionary who had the function of the bishop. Uh, the idea of proletarian schools was yeah. basically copied full form from the mission efforts and the missionary schools. <laughs> like if you look at all these working class institutions that we so much admire from the left, they always have um basically an exact copy of uh, in in the religious world, which is much older, in Sweden it was through the new Protestant wave of, of Protestantism that was oppositional towards the, the official official state. Uh, in France and in Germany, the the working class institutions basically copied the model of the Jesuits, right. And the Jesuits have always been, for the most part, the faction of the church that has uh, been most susceptible to, to Marxism and to leftist ideas because the Jesuits in their function is loose network that uh, serves, serves the church outside of parishes. Uh, by churches, by hospitals, by missionary work. They have basically functioned as floating intellectuals and therefore has been much more susceptible to, first to uh, Marxism, now to liberalism, to, mm-hmm. to be fair. Because one of the sad things, when we go back into the history of, of the liberation Liberation theology is that in Latin America, not everywhere, but in Europe as well, it has degenerated into some form of liberalism.
2: Right. Well, and so has the the left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Around the world, more generally, um, it
0: mirrors it mirrors the trajectory that the left has taken.
2: Absolutely. Right. It turns out that it turns out that without, without like a, a center of gravity in the form of like an, uh, at least a nominally alternative society, um, that we have all, all of those of us who, who desire, you know, who, who intend to embody, you know, resistance to the dominant society, we have all drifted in a, in a way, uh, very, very far into what we could historically understand as liberalism. Yeah. And, uh, that's like the, I mean, honestly, to me, it seems like the main challenge is to for a, for a lot of people, it seems to be that they think that the main challenge of the left is to win over the liberals, and to me, it seems like the main challenge is to divorce ourselves so far from liberalism that winning over the liberals actually is a task. Um,
1: yeah, 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 and like there has been a lot of debate lately within the left of tailism, that concept of just chasing, chasing the latest fad. And good missionary work usually works as Talism. (laughs) You see, like, and that was how the Catholic Church came into contact with Marxism. Like, oh, uh, this is where the shit is happening. (laughs) Let's go and have a look at that, at at that, and use that to bring people into the church. Right. With the great exception of, like, there are two big waves of liberation theology. That is um, the first wave in the, like, 80s to 80s to 1920s, and then we have the Latin American wave. But there is also a 1.5, which was much more influential, and that was the formation of radical theology within the resistance movements during the Second World War. The most famous name there is Jacques Maritain, which is extremely influential within the Second Vatican Council as it's basically set up the doctrine of the modern church in its approach to the secular world. And he was a leftist in in his youth. Then when he became a Catholic quite late in his life, like in his 20s, he he became a fellow traveler with fascism. Uh, and a lot of Catholics in this time period became fellow travelers with fascism. But a lot of them left and joined the opposition, the underground resistance within the early 40s. Jacques Maritain was was one of those who like thought no no I was wrong. And when you as a Catholic join the resistance, you meet a lot of Marxists.
0: Right. right.
1: And they are your comrades in this struggle. And then you have to engage them as persons in this common struggle. And that was where a new radical theology was born. Like today we call it Christian democracy, but the early Christian democracies in Germany in france uh was much more radical than we can imagine, like they had the goal to abolish to abolish capitalism, and you still have some fractions within the official Christian Democratic parties in Central Europe were still fighting for that, like the former a uh, former uh, finance minister of Angela Merkel uh, wrote in two thousand and sixteen a, a book about like we have to move beyond capitalism.
2: Right. Well, yeah. and look, the same thing could be said about social democrats and communists. There was once yeah. a radical version of them that desired the overthrow of capitalism, but they're hard to find exactly. now, except for in small factions within those parties.
1: Yes. And Jacques Maritain then engaged in, like in the 30s, he engaged in a debate with Bukhari, actually. Really? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's like only translated into France, in indeed, the, the, into the French. Uh, so I have only been able to read secondhand account of it, uh, but because this new Catholic movement of intellectuals started something that is known as personalism, uh-huh. which is a way to it is a philosophical movement which goal is to have a radical critique of modernism. Mm but saving the dignity of the individual and the individual's connection with God. Uh, today, the most famous person on so the land... So, uh,
0: Protestantism?
1: No, be- because all, <laughs> all, all all, of these persons were Catholics, actually. Yeah, yeah. Or almost yeah, all yeah. of them. Uh, Martin Buber is the most famous Jew- Jewish one.
3: Right.
1: Uh, uh, but the most famous Catholic... Besides Jack Maritain, who most leftists would probably know who he was, is is uh, Simone de, uh huh, uh was a large proponent of uh, of personalism. She she was the one who hired who hid, who hid the Trotsky in France <laughs> from uh-huh. the government. Uh, she was had, she
0: hung out with the existentialists too, right in France? He, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or Or like more, the existentialists admired her, and she thought the existentialist was full of crap. (laughs) But she was also a... Today, she's mostly known as a mystic, but she was a labor organizer. She fought in the civil war in in Spain as a pacifist on the Republican side,
0: (laughs) Those are the good kinds of pacifists, the ones that fight against the fascists.
1: Exactly. And <laughs> Yeah, those are my a, favorite. A, a real fascinating personality who was for who was for a long time blacklisted in France, lost lost her job because she organized Marxist unions and was very close to Marxists and, and radical syndicalists. Like though that way it it's probably intellectually the most interesting wave uh, the one point five wave who basically found Marxism through through the disillusionment of uh, of, the, of the fascist and projects because as as Walter Benjamin claimed, each fascist. Takeover is a failed revolution. And these Catholics realized that. And Benjamin went the other way. If you read uh, Walter Benjamin's uh, doctoral thesis, uh, The Origin of the German Tragedy, in 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 the first draft, he was much more inspired by, um, by classical Or new Kabbalah, a Jewish mystique. Right. right. Uh, And there's a famous passage where he claims that the only way for for the poor and degraded to reclaim dignity is through the power of prayer, is to mold their suffering into prayer. And and then when he became a Marxist, he just changed one word and changed prayer to revolution.
0: Like, well, that I think revolution can be a type of prayer, engaging yeah. in
1: revolution. <laughs> yes, and so, then when the and then when these one point five generation began their tug of war with the official Vatican bureaucracy after the Second World War, most of them became blacklisted within the church. Then the Second Vatican Council happened in the sixties, and basically they won they got to set the agenda of the second Vatican council
2: well, I mean that helps explain why it's the um it's such a watershed moment in terms of like uh, uh progressive leap forward in the church
1: exactly and then when the second Vatican council and those documents were sent into latin america because yeah we, this is the new deal then Primarily, a student organization started with, with the famous waving of liberation theology, like, okay, Christianity is not what it used to be, people are not going to church. So the students there basically like, okay, we started to study the Second Vatican Council, and then went back to the sources. Like, okay, this means Liberation Theology, To Hey, that was how Liberation Theology was born.
0: (laughs) Hello. Just wanted to remind everyone of a few things. First of all, we have a Patreon. If you like us enough to give us $2 a month, you can join our Patreon and receive access to our irregularly posted content. We only have one tier, and that tier provides access to our Discord server, which includes discussion about all sorts of stuff which may or may not be relevant to the podcast. We're also going to be doing reading groups and patron roundtables, which will be group discussions on topics decided in the Discord and recorded as special patron-only episodes. In addition to that, we've got our regular patron-only episodes that are posted whenever we come up with a topic or find an article that we think is super interesting and actually have time to talk about it. We have all kinds of ideas for other content and are always looking for more. If any of that interests you, become a patron and join it. I would also like to remind everyone that we are part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network, which includes Red Library, From 78, The Regrettable Century, and our Supergroup podcast. Well, here we are still, after all, which includes members of all three podcasts. Make sure to follow all of our respective podcasts on Twitter and to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcatching app. For real, go to iTunes right now, give us a five-star rating, and leave us a review about how much you like us. Let's trick the algorithm into showing our content to more people. Okay, back to the show. I've got a, a list of of the um, characteristics of of the second wave of liberation theology. As listed by Michael Lowy, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about those. (laughs) Moral and social condemnation of capital as a form of structural sin was one of the key components of liberation theology. And I actually think that that's super interesting. Um, Because if you, if you, even if you listen to like the Pope now, the way that he talks about capitalism. It's he mentions it as though engaging in what capitalism inevitably leads to is a sin. So he's he urges Catholics to reject usury and reject greed and uh reject environmental destruction, and um that there should be structural support for the poor and the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And none of that stuff is is capitalist. That's all very what ends up being anti-capital those are all anti-capitalist sentiments so you, you, even the pope now without explicitly um saying this sees a structural sin existing within capitalism
1: yes and it should be noted that like the reason why our new pope francis became bishop was that he was the most right wing priest (laughs) they could find in his whole, (laughs) yeah, like, so, like, he, he, it's, it's very interesting how, like, the shift of the perception of Francis went from, like, because for, for the longest time when he was bishop, the left hated him. Right. We and then when he became pope, like oh.
0: <laughs> well, I think that there's there's a bit of uh, a, I think softening that's happened to Francis in his old age, because from what I've read about him, he supposedly deeply regrets not sticking up for the poor and the oppressed under uh, the military dictatorship more than yeah. more than he did, and he's openly said this. And um, I don't I don't know if that's I don't really know much about his history or what his complicity in any of this stuff would have been. But according to him, he deeply regrets any role that he played in that. So I I'm not sure how how much to take that with a grain of salt or not.
1: Yeah, but like that's one one of the most famous liberation theologist was a far right winger from from the beginning, George Romero. No, 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 Oscar Romero?
2: Romero, Oscar Romero. <laughs> I uh, I am a, a devotee of the philosophy and faith, uh, dot the doctrine of George Romero. <laughs> yeah. yeah, zombies. Yeah. Uh, Zomb- uh, zombies are bad. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, but like Oscar Romero was 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 for the longest time a right winger. Uh huh. Who then, through. And that was why he, he, he was elected bishop, to as the bulwark towards the Marxists. Uh-huh. But, then the, but then there came a time when, he, when like he basically couldn't see himself in the face anymore. Right. And like, and like this moral conversion.
0: Yeah, he, he actually started living his beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he was killed for it, and now he's a saint.
1: No, he's not.
0: Oh, he's not? Is he just a. He's been canonized, though.
1: Uh, Yeah, but he's not a saint. And, like, he he will probably become a saint soon. But, like, basically, John Paul II hated his guts. Oh, yeah. And and, and actually, like, silent and, like, went out with official statements that that he is not the martyr. He's not the (laughs) saint.
0: Yeah, well, uh, John Paul II did a whole, whole lot of uh, damage.
1: To... Yeah, like, if we're about to, like, find an ursin of the Catholic Church in modern times, I would probably claim his pontificate.
3: Yeah. Mm.
1: Because he, like, basically, and it's understandable that he had a deep hatred of, uh, of communism because he grew up in Poland. Uh, but basically, to fight Marxism, he made it for the devil, and basically, like, okay, we have pedophiles or we have Marxists, and he knowingly shows pedophiles. We know this for a fact, right? That that he chose to put a blind eye towards the abuse because is in some cases the abusers were anti communists, and that came before
0: yeah, and um he when you say he did a deal with the devil the the relationship between the c i a and the Vatican bank and the yeah. and the um operation Gladio components that existed all a uh, much of which was brokered through the Vatican at the time is absolutely unforgivable,
1: yeah. And like he also in Malta, there was this big conflict with, with the large Catholic communist movement, really large. And there was this feudal lords and bishops. And basically, he sided with the feudal lords and bishops who were like basically fascists. Yeah. And excommunicated everyone who was a member of the communist party.
0: Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. So, like, uh, I don't know if it's still on the books, but being a communist and being a Catholic for the longest time was uh, uh, anathema.
1: It was being a member of a communist party.
2: Being a member of, the, of a communist party, right? Well, right. Being a being a communist with a capital C, not being philosophically for a communitarian revision of the world, but being exactly. affiliated to the official formal communist movement.
1: And, so, and to be frank. Communists during the 19th century didn't make it easy for the left wing in the Catholic Church to. Oh sure. To to like, fight this.
0: Yeah, exactly. One of the second characteristics he mentions is. The use of a Marxist explanation of the causes of poverty, uh, conditions of capital, and of class struggle. Contradictions of capital and class struggle. So the liberation theologists adopted the most important parts of Marxism. (laughs) I think that uh, that to me was one of the most interesting things when reading about liberation theology is how essentially – Marxism was sort of just grafted on, not like borrowed from, but the most important parts of Marxism as an organizational category were grafted into liberation theology. The next things that Lowy mentions are that liberation theologists wanted to develop a base, like essentially use base building models to develop base communities as a new church and alternative to capitalist individualism. So essentially rebuilding new communal centers that would be a resistance to capitalism and, of course, the hierarchical structure of the church, and emphasize a new reading of the Bible that would, or, or promote a new reading of the Bible that would emphasize the liberatory message of the Bible. And I think that this is one of the most interesting and useful parts here is fight idolatry, not atheism, as the main enemy of religion, mm. because and it specifically mentions the new Herods, Caesars, and Mammon of the world are all structurally integrated into capitalism. And I mentioned this early, that historical human liberation is the anticipation of the final return of Christ. Lastly, a critique of traditional dualist theology as the product of Platonic Greek philosophy and not of biblical tradition where the human and divine are distinct but inseparable. Which, that's super interesting.
2: That right, so that's pretty parallel to um, our own project of trying to divorce science from uh, the strictly linear positivist uh, approach and toward a more uh, unified and dialectical approach.
1: Yes, because the problem with positivist science is, is not that it's science, it is that it's bad science. Like, yeah, it's
3: fake yeah, science.
1: Yeah, yeah. like the problem with liberal rationalism isn't that it's rational, it is that it it's not rational enough. It has this um, suppressed in the dream the Freudian sense, the suppressed trauma of, of the experience, of the experience of God, and in in the Jewish sense and in the Christian sense and between in the Abrahamic sense of of that you meet God in in another person's face in the suffering of, of the other. Uh, And that is wired into our brains biologically. And like to, like the most infuriating types of science is like evil psych.
3: Yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: And like, it's not that it's, it's not only that I disagree with their conclusions, it's also that like, they have to twist the facts so far to reach them that is obvious nonsense
0: I think that one of the, the big takeaways from our reading series that we're doing right now um, on the enchantments of mammon mm-hmm. which I definitely recommend to everyone if you haven't picked it up and started reading that yet you should, is that there is this capitalist enchantment that replaces a religious enchantment mm-hmm. um, uh, that it, that Sort of progresses through beginning in the Reformation and coming into a culmination in the twentieth century. That uh, th- belief and faith in things that are outside of our understanding are replaced with a what Eugene McCarraher calls a pecuniary enchantment, where a belief in the market and a belief in um, a sort of uh, capitalist worldview replaces our previous religious enchantment and and acts as the and acts as a metaphysical stand-in for God
1: yeah. um, and and like there is a good Catholic because she sees this and I'm saying this without having read the book but from what you just surmised uh, that belief is not this Protestant idea of deep feelings that belief is a matter of faith, of faith in, uh, embodied in acts, in habits. Uh, right.
0: Orthopraxis.
1: Exactly. Uh, and that is one of the great Catholic critiques of Protestantism and of capitalism that you can be a sincere believer on a subjective plane in Christ and in God, and even in the church, without being a good Christian. Uh, Because a sincere faith, a sincere religious experience is always embodied in acts. If you have ever gone to a Catholic mass, the reason why we have all these weird rituals, kneelings, smoke, holy water, uh, the whole... Notion of the liturgy is that you will have to act, embody, be carried through the passion of Christ. And it's the same thing with capitalism as our new religion. We are embodying the capitalist ideology and the capitalist mechanics of, um, of love, of friendship, of interactions, even if we do not believe in them. The greatest example of this is Tinder. Like, even if you on a personal level believe in love and the meeting of another person's soul, and that some feelings can cannot correctly be quantified in algorithms, uh even if you believe that in a subjective level, you still have to commodify yourself mm. in order to uh to be a, a subject in, in the marketplace, because love has today been reduced to a marketplace. And that was one of the liberation theology's greatest critique of capitalism, which he didn't mention because the left is not, some type, Some part of the left has a bit of a problem with this. And that is that capitalism created and the nuclear their family. Uh, uh, and a nuclear family, like one child and one cis man and one cis woman living together in a, in a, in a house with white picket fence was something created by capitalism to fulfill consumerist needs. And the traditional role of the family has therefore disappeared. And that's one of the reasons why Religion has lost its grip on our lives because religion is built on large communities with grandparents, siblings, cousins living together in the same communal household uh, and sharing their lives. Because you cannot be a family if you do not share your life both materially uh, and spiritually. And that was one of the great critiques of Oscar Romero and also of Leonardo Boff, one of the great liberation theologies, that it was impossible to live a Christian life with care for your families in this new capitalist modernity.
0: Right. And I think that liberation theology, like the ideas of liberation theology of uh both the first one point five and second waves. Mm. One of the things that we can learn from these movements and uh, from many other left religious movements is a dulling of the edge of the reductionist and economistic sort of linear idea of vulgar materialist Marxism. Um, I think that trying to draw from the the deeply the deeply emotional and feeling and spiritual side of being human. And reintegrate that into into our Marxism. I think that that I think the liberation theologists had a method of appealing to the common people of of uh, you know Latin America that really resonated with deeply deep yearnings that they had that I think Marxists lack in a lot of instances. Yes. And yeah, and I don't think right. I don't think that we should, of course, all adopt some sort of well, that everyone needs to adopt some sort of Christianity or religious view in order to do this. But I think that it needs to be taken into consideration. Like I think that right. as, as a, as Marxists, we have to be propagandist enough to use what moves people most. And I think that it is not disingenuous to take away these lessons from the liberation theologists and incorporate them into, uh, into our organizing and into our, into our discourse, into our discussion. And, of course, I'm deeply moved by these sorts of things. I'm I'm not an atheist. I've come back around to um, uh, some sort of quasi-religious understanding of the world. And I think that this stuff resonates with me deeply because it already agrees with my Marxism. And I think that the reverse would be true for a lot of people.
2: Yes, right. I Uh, think that that Lowy does a really good job of making the case that, you know— like liberation theology, at least at the time of that article, which is, this is like the, was it the 80s? Yeah, that's, it's, and he says, you know, like it's forcing Marxists to rethink religion and his, his sort of schema that I really like is to try to move from first a recognition of mutual immediate interests, right? The tactical alliance toward a long term vision of remaking the world, um, you know, the, the, in, in anticipation of salvation. However, you conceive of it, right? So that's the, the strategic alliance, but ultimately, uh, arriving through the process of collaboration and of cross pollination of ideas yeah. and actual physical human beings in each other's camps of organic unity, to uh, a more uh, synthesized and holistic vision of of well praxis, and that's a very intriguing idea that um, I think gets lost too often when we talk about the convergence of or the, sh- the the semi-shared interests of, you know, Christianity and, and socialism that we, you know, the thing that I would hate to to take away from a conversation like this is what we need is more Christian socialists. That's too wooden. Yeah. Of a, of a, of, a, of an idea. It's, it's, that's a partial conversion of everybody over there to what I think rather than leaving open the space for some new Amalgamation and and a, and a higher level of well, the term he uses, organic unity, which I which I think is a very beautiful and interesting concept,
1: right? And, and here I would like to throw in um, a quite conservative, openly conservative, anti-communist Catholic thinker. One one of the great American conservative thinkers, be something uh, Burnham. Did that be right,
2: James Burnham? Yeah. Is that right? Oh, the, um, that's the, yeah, that's the bureaucratization of the world guy.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, And he had, he identified a correct problem in capitalism with his, uh, former Marxist thinking, but took it into Catholicism. And that was that the, the capitalist means of production, like, the classical second international view of the revolution was that uh, since the capitalist forces skilled, unskilled workers in the means of production, they would sooner or later be able to take over the means of production just without the the bourgeoisie because they because capitalism in its heroic phases, had a skilling factor for the proletariats. Uh, you learned how to use the machine, you learned how to build the machine, so on and so forth. What Burnham real, realized was that by the, by the 1950s, we had seen a diffusion of capital, primarily a separation between, between the owning and the managing of capital. Uh, within the Western world, that have led to a slow degeneration of skills among the managerial classes, but also among the proletarian classes, uh, and and I think that's that's quite correct. Like when I look at my grandfather at my mother's side. Uh, he knew how to how to repair all sort of stuff and he was a regular pro. Uh, most people today don't don't know that. Like if we took the proletariat of today and set them in power, like things would probably not go so well.
2: Right, that's actually um there's an episode we did uh, a while back with a with a very close friend and comrade uh Annalise and that was a big a big theme that she she hit a number of times is the it, to con to contrast that vision of, or that version of the average working person's life to today uh, as a very negative consequence of continual technological development, and that like we you know it's part of part of the like anti luxury com- luxury communism viewpoint yeah. it's like it actually is uh, we are tending in the direction of being less and less capable, and it's dangerous.
1: Yes, and like, the Catholic Church and Christianity overall has usually like, the fix to this is virtue, is personal virtue. Uh, and uh-huh. that, uh, and that doesn't work. Uh, but the Marxist alternative that we like, this Brechtian notion that future generations will have to forgive us for our crimes. Uh, right. Uh, does not work either because we have to, today we have forgotten as leftist movement to build our own skills. And that is perhaps not so controversial, the statement. But we have also, and this is something that the church is better on. We, we also need to, to be able to foster virtuous people. Exactly. As a movement, uh, and virtue is a real thing. And I might sound, sound like a, a, a reactionary now, but like, I usually prefer hanging out to my quite conservative Catholic friends than to many of my leftist friends. <laughs> because they're quite often better people.
0: That's, I, I've mentioned this before, yeah. is that I think that a lot of people on the left and myself being incredibly guilty of this we see we we gain a sense of self-righteousness because of the things that we believe Mm -hmm. and it allows us to behave in whichever manner we see fit without ever having to weigh any of these choices against some measure of virtue and i i think back to when i was the wokest that i ever was in my life you know and I thought that I was a good person because I believed all these woke things. And I practiced woke verbiage and stuff like that. But at the same time, I was not a good person.
2: No. I, and and yeah. once faith, I... Faith without works uh
0: Faith without dead. works is dead, right? Yeah. It, I was not a good person. And I... Because I was able to rationalize any bad thing that I ever did uh, with... I can rationalize that away by saying, well, look, I'm not a bad person. Look, I do this, believe this, I believe that. And it wasn't until I completely divested myself of any kind of idea that the things that I say and the things that I claim to believe make me a good person and that it is actually code of conduct that I live by, mm. a, a code of ethics, uh, you know, you know, that makes me a virtuous person. and And that, I think is something that the the Marxist left lacks. Is a system of virtue ethics. A system uh, of
1: virtue ethics absolutely. But uh but like that is just the first step. To come up with a system of virtue ethics is like the easy part. Like we have to build like some form of institutions to like right. foster these virtues because virtue is fucking hard. Like it is. If, uh, One of my close friend, for uh, a new friend who is also a Marxist and Catholic, he used to say, "Like, if you think that that I'm a terrible person now, that's correct. But you should have met me before I became a Catholic, <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
1: and before I was to Work on this, because like to become a virtuous, to become." less unvirtuous is perhaps a better word, it's like it's like a real struggle and it needs institutions, it needs reinforcements. That's the whole system of compassions. Uh, but the but the compassion is just lilting up it to like yeah. reinforce a certain type of behaviour. Uh, and we haven't even we cannot even begin to talk about skilling our people. We, ha- we haven't even begun with the arduous road of creating an, a system of ethics. And like, those are the simple parts to create, to implement these virtues is the hard part. And that is the discussion that we need to have. And that is something that a lot of conservative Catholics today have begun talking about. That it's basically impossible to be virtuous in a capitalist society, but that that is not an uh, that is not an excuse. Like it, it it has always been impossible to be a virtuous person. Like it wasn't much easier do, during feudalism.
0: <laughs> right, right. I think that um, you know, I'm I'm not advocating that all Marxists adopt a catholic form of virtue ethics (laughs) and go to confession but i am suggesting that the left seriously needs to take ethics into consideration and it needs to be something that we talk about like what makes one a virtuous person or a less unvirtuous person right and uh we need to behave uh in a manner of Self improvement that is that goes beyond uh, adoption of just parroting woke formulas, saying, "Oh, well, you know, since I choose to identify someone by the correct pronouns, then I'm a good person, and anyone who doesn't is a bad person." I think that it makes you an asshole if you don't do that. That's that's correct. But I think that uh, there is much more to being a virtuous person than putting on some sort of woke facade. And I think that that's all the left has now is woke window dressing is what passes for virtue.
2: Yeah, no no matter how fervently held those beliefs are, they still don't amount to um, like a material and constructive force in the world. Right. At best, they might make you feel good about yourself. Um, And there's something that's like kind of worthwhile there. Yeah. But uh, that's not our
1: that's not our point or our purpose.
0: I think it'd probably be better just to go to therapy if you want to feel good about yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably. Yeah. Like also, it's counterproductive because these woke signaling to people who actually work, it comes off as HR lingo. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah it, really, I, it really does. Yeah. Like to people who actually have travel, trouble with their boss. The boss is using that language of tiredness.
0: Yes. Uh, That's that's one of the... There's a big controversy on the American left since the George Floyd protests over whether or not these sorts of things being adopted by uh, big corporations and corporate sensitivity training around uh, books like White Fragility are, are useful and... What I mean, what I think is that yeah, there might be some usefulness in in making the workplace a little bit more habitable for people of color and you know, and LGBT people. Yeah, that that might be there there is a a little bit of usefulness there. But those things do not translate outside of the corporate work environment into being useful.
2: No, there's still there's still money changers whose tables need to be overturned and whose backs still need to be whipped. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yes, like I mean We have to keep those those things in our heads at the same time. Because, like, I am um, my father is a political refugee. I have Kurdish descent. I experienced a hell of a lot of racism in Sweden. Uh, It's a real thing. It sucks.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But you cannot fight that through those means. It might. It might make some lives a little bit more habitable but i'm actually quite skeptical towards even that
0: <laughs> well i couldn't speak to that because i've a uh, i'm a white guy
1: <laughs> white guilt white guilt yeah <laughs> you have white guilt i have catholic guilt <laughs> <laughs>
0: i actually don't have white guilt I, should no. i is
1: no is that <laughs> no. okay no.
0: cuz uh, i'm a uh, i've just got i i've got catholic guilt too you know i mean i despise myself for the wrong that I've done in my life, just as much as any good Catholic would, you know? Good.
1: <laughs> I would just like to add that the one of the biggest thing that the second wave of liberation theology t- took away from Marxism and that Marxism Took away from Judaism and Christianity is this messianic horizon of yeah. the, of the progress of history that there may be setbacks, but there is a telos in history and we can, we can depart from that tel- uh, telos sometimes permanently, but there is a good um, a messianic horizon that we can strive towards.
0: Right. And I think that that's probably the ultimate goal of this podcast is to encourage people to look towards those horizons and uh, imagining a new future. Because I think that this reality, capitalist reality, capitalist modernity is devoid of hope. So we must lose hope in it in order to be able to hope for a better future. And that that goes back to our whole idea of a uh, dialectical pessimism. I'm deeply pessimistic about things as they exist now ever getting better. And in that pessimism, I find an optimism for a future that it, that could possibly exist after we destroy the present.
2: Right, which is which is a, a future born of a radical break from this trajectory, rather than a uh... A future that is imagined as this trajectory um, taking us somewhere better.
0: Right. And I will gladly, I will gladly engage in the millenarian project of creating heaven on earth.
1: Yeah, and like, and, and I think an important point that Jason raised was that this break, that, that there has to be a break with the trajectory now towards a different path but that break in itself will sanctify the past.
4: God bless the grass that grows through the crack. They roll the concrete over it to try to keep it back. The concrete gets tired of what it has to do. It breaks and it buckles and the grass grows through And God bless the grass God bless the truth that fights towards the sun They roll the lies over it and think that it is done It moves through the ground, it reaches for the air And after a while, it's growing everywhere And God bless the grass God bless the grass that grows through cement Green and it's tender, it's easily bent But after a while, it lifts up its head For the grass is living and the stone is dead And God bless the grass God bless the grass that's gentle and low The roots, they are deep and the will is to grow And God bless the truth, the friend of the poor and the wild grass growing at the poorer man's door God bless the grass